Hey guys, Isaac here. Just a reminder that we are on vacation this week, but I hope you enjoy this rerun of a past podcast episode. We'll be back with fresh episodes on Monday, August 21st. Enjoy. From executive producer Isaac Saul, this is Tangle. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Tangle Podcast, the place where you get views from across the political spectrum, some independent thinking without all that hysterical nonsense you find everywhere else. I'm your host, Isaac Saul, and on today's episode, we are sitting down with Jacob M. Changama. He is the author of a book that I absolutely love, Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media. He is also a Danish lawyer, a human rights advocate, and a social commentator, and he is the founder and director of Justicia. How do you say that, Jacob? Uh, Justicia, yeah, probably. Justicia. Yeah, I guess that is the English way. I should have asked that before I brought you on. That is a Copenhagen-based think tank focusing on human rights, freedom of speech, and the rule of law. Jacob, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Isaac, man. I've really uh, been looking forward to it. So first of all, I mean, I just, again, I want to, I'll plug it before we get off once more. Um, I am about 50 pages away from being done your book, which is a tour de force of free speech history across the globe from ancient Athens all the way up to the modern day. I'm so curious, maybe you could just start by telling us a little bit about yourself and and how you came to write this book. What's the story behind it? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I you know, spent both of my life here in, in, in Copenhagen, uh, Denmark, and, and Denmark is not exactly sort of an authoritarian uh, state, uh, so you might be curious why the hell would I care about free speech? Since for most of my life I've been taking it for granted. But as you and and your listeners might remember, back in 2005 there was a Danish newspaper that published some cartoons depicting the Prophet Muhammad, and that led to a huge, I would say, clash over the relationship between free speech, uh, identity politics, religion, minority rights, uh, and, and so on. And a lot of people who were sort of on the secular liberal left suddenly had a change of heart about free speech. They, they suddenly saw these cartoons as an abuse of free speech, just punching down on vulnerable minorities, whereas on the right, people were, were free speech absolutists. And then, you know, then, then, then a few years down the line, you had a center-right government that adopted laws restricting uh, religious speech that was pretty obviously aimed at, at uh, imams and, and, and sort of radical Islamic preachers. And then suddenly, you know, the right was saying, well, in order to protect free speech, we have to limit uh, certain types of free speech. And the left were, oh, this is, you know, going against our values. And, um, you know, I, I think the, the, the whole cartoon affair sort of got me thinking about it and maybe, maybe became a little bit obsessed about free speech. And then, I, you know, why do people continuously change their positions on free speech? Why does it matter? And does it matter? How much does it matter? If it matters, um, where does it come from, this principle? Uh, what are the consequences of not having free speech? Uh, and, you know, uh, um, yeah, so, so all these questions sort of uh, made me, me interested in, in, in free speech and very committed also to the principle. But then I in, in 2017, I began a podcast called Clear and Present Danger, a History of Free Speech sort of a 40, 40 episode, uh, with, and the book is, in, is sort of pulled from that, sort of an, a, a, uh, an attempt to sort of condense 
all of that free speech uh, history, because I think in many ways you get a more detached view of the present if you look at it through the prism of, of the past. You don't have to get sucked into the vortex of culture wars and tribalism if you if, if you look at, at at contemporary issues through through historical precedents. Yeah, well, I I will try and suck you into a couple of those in this podcast because I think so much of your book is relevant to this current moment, especially through the American lens. Um, I, I don't know that the timing of this book could be better. And I think here here in the U.S., censoriousness is rising, you know, on both sides in, in a yeah. much more legislative fashion on the right, I think, but in a very cultural way on the left. I'd love to hear maybe if you could tell me a little bit about where you see us, the United States, Europe, the, you know, a lot of the Western places that have sort of, I think, well, I learned in your book, not always, but in a lot of cases in sort of the modern world have sort of championed things like free speech. Where, where are we in this arc of the history of free speech right now? Is this a is this a good time for free speech? Is it a bad time? How do you, how do you view that? Well, you know, I think there are two ways that you can look at it. Uh, one way is to say, listen, free speech is an international human rights norm protected in conventions. Um, it's, you know, legally, it, free speech has never been, enjoyed a stronger constitutional protection probably in the U.S. than now under the Roberts Court. So, and, and you know, technology just gives us opportunities to share and access information that no uh, generation of human beings have ever even come close to uh, previously. Uh, you know, you're sitting right now uh, in the U.S. I'm in Denmark. We can talk with no with no censorship. Um, so, so that obviously an incredible way to exercise free speech, even even if I suspect that neither of us are, are thinking of it as in terms of, of our of, of, of exercising our fundamental rights. We just take it for granted, right? Um, so that's sort of the positive look. But then you could say, you know, if you go back for more than a decade, um, free speech has been in decline, I would say, across the, the globe, starting with authoritarian states, which is not surprising because all the way from the overthrow of the Athenian democracy, it's sort of page one in the 101 of authoritarianism is, you know, do away with free speech if you, if you, if you want to become an, an authoritarian and, and rule a country. Um, but what I see is that also European uh, democracies are, are, are limiting free speech, so especially laws trying to rein in hate speech um, on, on social media, propaganda. Um, and, and in the U.S., um, as I said, the, the constitutional protection of the First Amendment is extremely strong. Um, but, but as you rightly mentioned, the culture of free speech is, is, is in decline, I think. Um, so in, in the sense uh, that, uh, you know, the, the, you know, from cam campus, college, uh, college campuses, that, that there seems to be less tolerance of speech. And also, I think younger and more progressive generations who are genuinely, I think, concerned about racism and intolerance tend to view free speech as a threat to minorities, whereas earlier civil uh, civil libertarianism perhaps dominated more sort of the boomer and, uh, generations who saw tolerance for even racist speech as, um, as, as a necessary precondition for, for, for equality. So, so in other words, you could say older generations saw free speech and equality as, as mutually reinforcing, whereas younger gener generations now increasingly tend to see free speech, at least extreme speech, 
and equality is mutually exclusive. And I think that has influenced the debate uh, around free speech and, and, the, and the cultural tolerance. And then you see a backlash from conservatives who claim to be very concerned about uh, cancel culture, but then respond with extremely <laughs> illiberal laws trying to cement their own versions of orthodoxy in, in education and not, not just sort of primary school, but also uh, higher, higher education. So that I think is a very destructive dynamic. Um, and, and ultimately, I think the culture of free speech is probably going to be more important than, than the legal protection because it's going to influence where the legal protection is being, uh, comes down. Uh, so, you know, the First Amendment ratified in 1791, wording hasn't changed, but there's a huge difference in what types of speech are protected in 2022 versus, uh, versus uh, you know, just going back uh, five decades uh, or, 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 or even further. So, so in that sense, uh, I'm, a, I'm a bit pessimistic sometimes about the U.S., uh, although the history of free speech tends to see so. So, um, so, so this might be a blip. Um, I don't know. Yeah, one of the things about your book that really hit home for me was this sort of this idea that the state restriction on speech is kind of predetermined by the culture of free speech that exists in certain places. And that pattern came up a lot in the book. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, if you find that characterization accurate, that the cultural notion of free speech sort of dictates where the state goes and and if so, how do, how have we seen that play out historically in the past? Yeah, I think you know. I, obviously, it's it's more complicated than that. I, you know, I think the sort of cross fertilization between culture and law, but ultimately, I think that the, the culture is likely to be to shape the laws um, more than than the other way uh, around. Uh, but obviously, as as with most things, it, it's more complicated <laughs> than that. But I think you know. Lots, lots of examples. So, for, in, for instance, you know, the French Revolution led to a huge backlash against free speech. Uh, you know, the Enlightenment cele celebrated, started celebrating free speech, but then the, fr the, the French Revolution uh, led to many states being extremely wary of, of free speech. And, and in Europe, you know, it was the return of throne and altar, uh, uh, basically. And the, the backlash was much stronger in Europe. There was also backlash in the U.S. You had the Sedition Act of 1798, which was born out of concerns about possible war with France and, and sort of political polarization between Federalists and Democratic Republicans. But, but it, it, you know, this, even if the Sedition Act sent critics of President Adams in, in, in prison, it was nowhere near the same degree of intolerance uh, as on the continent. And I think one of the reasons for that was that that had been for a long time a robust culture of free speech in the U.S. where, where people would discuss politics in, in pamphlets, in taverns, uh, you know, they would use strong some symbolic speech, um, you know, the, the, there was an expectation that you could actually criticize your politicians without being convicted for, for sedition uh, and so on. And that was very different to, to what was the State of affairs on, uh, on on the continent. So so that that could be that could be one example. Uh, and then you know you could also look at you know the First Amendment really only gets the sort of uh, really robust principle protection that you enjoy now. You get that uh, sort of the late fifties and, and and the sixties. And that 
uh, I think is is influenced by by changing attitudes, also sort of more uh, liberal attitudes, more sort of uh, a reckoning with racial injustice. So the, the 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 civil rights movement plays an important role in expanding um, the First Amendment uh, through through a number of, of landmark cases. Um, but that that is obviously influenced by by attitudes. Of judges, uh, you know, if you've taken judges uh, that of older generations, they would not have been as receptive to ideas about equality as as, as the judges of of, of of the 60s. So, so in that sense, I think I think it it's, uh, it makes sense to talk about the culture of free speech. And of course, you also see it with you know someone like John Stuart Mill, right? You know, very clearly that he sees the tyranny of majority opinion to and its tendency to impose its values on dissenters as, as equally dangerous to sort of the tyranny of the magistrate. Um, you see Tocqueville's sort of uh, his democracy in America. He says that on the one hand, you know, there are very wide limits for free speech in, in America. But if you cross majority opinion, then you're sort of subject to persecution because you go against uh, the majority and that sort of is the end of your career. And, and only the fact that you have such a distributed um, network of, of publications and newspapers means that this does not sort of devolve into complete tyranny of, of the majority. Yeah, you, you sort of touched on this in both of your last answers, I think. But but one of the narratives about free speech in America um, especially on the left in America right now, is this idea that allowing free speech or a certain level of free speech to kind of run rampant inherently dangers, endangers marginalized people. It enhances white supremacy. And I saw you kind of wade into this argument a little bit on Twitter last week. Um, you know, I think there was some controversy about Sean King quit Twitter for a day yeah. or something and, you know, had, had basically said that, Elon Musk takeover was all about apartheid and, and white supremacy. And um, yeah. you said the idea that the principle of free speech enhances white supremacy, apartheid, et cetera, is deeply at odds with history. Censorship and repression was instrumental to slavery, Jim Crow and apartheid South Africa. Could you flesh that out for me a bit and, and talk a little bit about what you mean and what we've seen throughout history in terms of, you know, the value of free speech protecting marginalized people? Because I I feel like that's a really important point that is totally absent from the discourse today, at least here in the U.S. Yeah, actually, actually just before we started, I was just about to go on a tweet thread because I, the, the New York Times correspondent in South Africa wrote a piece about how Elon Musk's view about free speech was informed by uh, the harms of free speech in, in South Africa, uh, apartheid South Africa, which is, uh, you know, I should formulate myself, but but it's I think wildly inaccurate and misleading, uh, and and we can get back to that. But maybe we you know we could start we could start with with uh, 19th century America. So and the hypocrisy of, of of laws adopted in southern states, for instance. So you have at, in the 1830s anti-slavery uh, societies start this campaign where they mail abolitionist uh, pamphlets and treatises to the South in order to try and, and convince Southerners to give up uh, slavery. And, and the way that Southern states respond to this is to adopt some of the most draconian laws restricting free speech in the history of, of the United States. So some of the some states actually formally adopt the death penalty. I, I don't know that anyone was actually executed, but, but there are certainly cases of people being 
being punished. Um, and and you know some of the some of these laws were extremely hypocritical. So take Virginia. So in 1776, uh, you know, in, in June, even before the Declaration of Independence, Virginia adopts its its Bill of Rights, which which protects free speech as the bulwark of liberty, which can only be restricted by despotic governments. But then in 1836, Virginia adopts a law which says that you cannot write or publish something arguing that masters don't have a property, uh, a right to property in their slaves, and you cannot write or say anything that sort of um, incites uh, slaves to, uh, to do, uh, against their, their, their masters. So, so these types of laws were, were, were prominent uh, in the South. And um, whereas on the other hand, you had you, you, you had a, someone like Frederick Douglass, um, who's one of my favorite um, abolitionists, someone who was born in slavery, escapes and, and becomes one of the greatest orators in, in, in American history, and, and who argues very forcefully you know, that free speech uh, is, a, uh, you know, is a precious right, especially to the oppressed. And it says, you know, five years of slavery in the South would do away, uh, five years of free speech in the, in the South would do away with, with slavery. And he argues, eloquently that free speech is a universal human right that does not depend on your on you know the color of your skin or your wealth or or, or your status uh, and he does this when he's being you know he he, he does this he writes this eloquent plea for free speech in boston after being heckled by white bostonians who who don't appreciate uh, an abolitionist meeting in boston because you know it'll endanger the union it'll it'll, it'll endanger the commercial interests in the south and and so they Sort of disrupt this this meeting. And in, very interestingly, you also have a lot of very very brave women who combine. So here you can really talk about intersectionality. You, who, who combine the advocacy of women's rights? Women obviously don't have a right to vote at, at this point in time. With opposition to slavery, and do it very effect, effectively uh, at the time. Now. Even after slavery is abolished, of course, you have Jim Crow laws and, and, and so on. And, and there, the civil rights movement depends heavily on the practice and principle of free speech to advance their, their ideas. Uh, and um, the late Congressman John Lewis uh, said uh, that, you know, without free speech and the right to, to dissent, the civil rights movement would have, would have been a bird without wings. Uh, and, and as I said, you know, the, the civil rights, you know, a classic case like New York Times versus Sullivan, which protects uh, both journalists and ordinary Americans' right to, to vehemently criticize uh, public officials and the, and, and the government and, and not be punished for sedition or, or false information uh, was a civil rights uh, movement case. Um, so, so in that sense, I, I just I, I think that free speech has been absolutely instrumental for every oppressed group, whether it's women, whether it's, it's racial minorities, religious minorities, um, the LGBT movement. In 1958, four percent of Americans were in favor of, of interracial marriages. Today, it's like 94 uh, percent, and and all the while, while these attitudes have changed. Free speech has been the protection of free speech has been strengthened uh, constitutionally. So, so, so that progress has not come come about by people being censored or being sent to jail for bigoted opinions. It has been come about not least uh, through the use of through the exercise of free speech. You know, arguing to your citizens, you know, am I not a fully human being just because my my skin color is different from yours? Do I not have fundamental uh, human dignity? Um, uh, you know, protest. 
petitions, uh, demonstrations, uh, and so on, I, I think um, um, have have been much more efficient than than uh, than laws limiting uh, free speech. So, so I think that's a very important thing to to have part. And as, as I mentioned, apartheid South Africa is the same story. You know, apartheid regime had hate speech laws that protected the white man. So Alex Haley's video version of Roots was prohibited. <laughs> they had their own index of censorship with, with 20,000 titles, you know, uh, Nelson Mandela was banned. Uh, there were these banning orders, which meant that you couldn't, you know, you couldn't speak, you couldn't attend public me- meetings, you couldn't quote uh, a particular person. So the idea that free speech was instrumental to white supremacy, I just don't see any historical basis uh, for that. Whereas I think the practice and principle of free speech has been absolutely essential for, for racial uh, equality. And free speech, I think, has been probably the most powerful engine of, of human equality that we've ever stumbled upon as, as, a, as a species. Yeah. Another part of this book that I found so entertaining, because it is dense historically, and I just felt like every chapter was sort of like another time in history where people were freaking out about free speech. It was just like this this new flower opening of people losing their minds over free speech, whether it was, you know, in Muslim communities in whatever, the ninth century or in Greek Athens or wherever. It's just like over and over we've seen this play out. And I thought that maybe the most relevant to what we're sort of witnessing today was the advent of the printing press. And it seemed like that moment is deeply parallel in history to what we're experiencing now with concerns about internet and social media platforms and, you know, increasing the speed that information can spread. So I'm curious, you know, what kind of similarities you see between that time and now, and and maybe what differences too. I mean, sure. Um, I'm sure it's not a it's not a perfect parallel. No, no. I, I and you know, I I might want to go back even further, just because I think there's you know in, in the in the book I I contrast two concepts of free speech. One is is egalitarian, and one is elitist. And, and so egalitarian free speech has its roots in in the Athenian ancient democracy. Um, which for its time was was radically egalitarian, not by by our standards. Whereas free speech in the Roman Republic was much more top down. It was an elite that exercised free speech, and whereas you wouldn't allow ordinary uh, citizens, the plebs, the unwashed mob, free speech because they couldn't handle it, and their their, their voices were not worthy to uh, be heard in in, in public uh, discussions on, on public policy. And I think those two concepts have sort of been clashing ever since, um, and of course, the printing press is a is a huge game changer um, in in many ways because it democratizes access uh, to 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 reading to to writings, um, and um, and and someone who takes um, full advantage of that is Martin Luther. So it's difficult to imagine the success of the Reformation without the printing press because Luther is just. Like a natural-born talent at religious populism, you know. If he if he'd been on Twitter, he would have had like three hundred million followers, right? Um, he's just like he doesn't write. He, he writes in, in German, not not boring dry Latin. He writes sort of short, punchy treatises. He uses memes and cartoons to sort of demonize his his, his opponents, and it just resonates with people. Uh, and that, of course, has extremely influential consequences. It disrupts political and religious authority uh, throughout Europe and, and has 
consequences for that 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 we're still living with today. I think the, the limits of the of the parallel. Well, the, the clear parallel is, of course, that you know initially the Catholic Church and various rulers thought it was a great idea with the printing press because it would allow them to spread their ideas more uniformly and and sort of shore up their authority. Then they quickly found out that that was you know people could use it for to spread other ideas. Democracies have found out the same thing with, with social media. Um, but on the other hand, it was not, you know, today, social media comes at a time where free speech has been a principle for a long time. At that time, no one really believed in free speech. Martin Luther didn't believe in free speech. Uh, he believed that he was in, possessed the truth and the Catholic Church was corrupting the truth. And therefore, he should have a right to publish his ideas. But he certainly was not in favor of everyone else uh, being, you know, it was not sort of... Um, Tolerance or universal uh, freedom of conscience uh, for for all, but but it it would probably be difficult to imagine the, the development of tolerance and free speech um, along the lines that we enjoy them today without uh, that uh, w w without that uh, historical development. But we also see it, you know, we we see it later on, you know, you so. Uh, with, with the Telegraph, for instance, uh, in 1858, the New York Times writes that the transatlantic telegraph is is too fast uh, for the truth, you know, uh, because uh, you know information is unsifted. Uh, and um, you know, uh, Alexander Michael John, who's, who's a great free speech advocate, you know, when it comes to the commercial radio, he says that you know it it brings enslavement and 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 corrupts our morals, and therefore it shouldn't be protected by the First Amendment. Uh, and you, of course, see huge about turns even um, in the age of internet. So if you look at Barack Obama in 2006, he hailed the internet as this platform which allows him to say what he wants without censorship. In 2008 and 2012, he wins the so-called Facebook generation, uses the internet incredibly efficiently, much more uh, efficiently than his uh, Republican opponents. And then after the 2020 election, he suddenly declares that, you know, now disinformation, online disinformation is the greatest threat against uh, democracy. Um, so, so you see this, these outbreaks of elite panic where whenever the institutional gatekeepers who, who have enjoyed a privileged access to shape the, uh, the public sphere come under threat. And sometimes, you know, elite panic is driven by real concerns and dilemmas. Uh, you know, uh, I, I followed your, your, your Twitter account uh, religiously, uh, you know, with, with the fallout from the 2020 election, uh, and and that was a dangerous moment in American history uh, for sure. And and social media played a, uh, an important role in spreading insane conspiracy theories that ultimately contributed to to the attack on the peaceful transfer of power. So it's not that there's nothing there, but it's it's very often that things get exaggerated, and also that the solutions offered are, I think, a cure worse than the disease. Um, so the idea that you could have sort of laws against disinformation in the U.S. if the First Amendment was to allow it, that would be adopted and enforced in a sort of nonpartisan uh, manner, I think is uh, completely insane. I would say quite obviously at this moment in, in American history, such a law would be used in a very partisan manner and to target very, you know, depending on whether uh, it was a Republicans or Democrats who, who were in power. If you if you had sort of a federal law against disinformation, that would be incredibly dangerous. One one of the really interesting things too about the internet and the advent of the internet and its sort of 
place in the political world right now is, you know, I sort of see that non-elite entering the space parallel so clearly, you know, between 2008, 2012 now, and also compared to the 90s. I mean, um, I think Jonathan Haidt wrote that Atlantic article recently that sort of put the blame for all the the ails of the world on the internet. And one of the things I felt like he just totally didn't address was the fact that, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, the internet was a space for really wealthy tech, highly educated people. And now it's a space for everybody. And I think that is like the major distinction between that time and this time. It's not that you know, it's functioning much differently than it was then. It's just that there's a new class of people that are also enjoying this information center. And um, that sort of just changed the dynamics a lot in a big way. You know, I, I guess I'm curious. I mean, I know this is a broad question, but given that you've spent so much time immersed in the the history of free speech, I'm wondering whether you think there should be a limit to free speech. I mean, can there be too much speech? Where have we seen historically the line drawn maybe in a healthy or effective way? Or is it kind of, you know, you alluded to it a little bit there. I mean, has is it always an impossible task? Like, wh- where do you land on that after doing all of this research? Yeah, no, I think, you know, I, I think there are many limits on free speech, actually, that we, we don't even think of as controversial. So you know, fraud, for instance, you know, if you want to commit fraud, you, you have to use speech. And, and, and I, I don't know anyone who would argue that fraud is, is protected speech or embezzlement. And so um, some, some categories are more difficult. So I, I, I tend not to support laws against hate speech because I think it's impossible to define and they're likely to be abused. And, and in any way, any event are not uh, may actually be more counterproductive w- when enacted. Um, but, I, you know, let me give you an example where I think clearly uh, the, the line was crossed. So Ida B. Wells, um, you know, may be one of the, the bravest journalists in the history of America. She was born as a slave and then starts a newspaper in Memphis called the Memphis Free Speech, where she travels around the South to document lynchings and sort of exposes the lie that whites often uh, invoke in order to support lynchings that, you know, it's because black men rape white women. And she says, you know, she, she writes an editorial sort of more than intimating that <laughs> these relationships are often uh, consensual relationships between uh, black men and white women. And so uh, local white newspapers, uh, one of them writes something along the lines that the, 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 the black scoundrel who wrote that should be should basically be executed, should be killed. And, and you know, whites storm and destroy the press and, and she, uh, she has to go into exile. Now, that, of course, was, was a direct incitement to, to, uh, to, 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 to violence and, and an imminent one that I think clearly crossed the line, the same with, with threats and, and so on. So there are certainly categories of, of, uh, of speech. I, I'm sure that if the, the FBI today were to review all of the posts leading up to January 6th, they might find a couple of, of posts there that were also, um, whether you say they, these were actually real threats. You know, these were people that, uh, that, that said very openly that they were going there and, and willing to, to, to use violence. Um, and, and I think they said as much in, in, in a report that, you know, one of the reasons that they hadn't been able to step in was because it was difficult to sort of distinguish between cre- credible threats and, and constitutionally protected speech. 
So, so, so I think there are, yeah, there, there are certainly red lines. What I'm particularly concerned about is protecting viewpoints. So there's this concept that uh, American lawyers often use of, of viewpoint neutrality that I that I very strongly believe in. So you, you know, I think you should have the right to deny the Holocaust. I think you should have the right to say anti-Semitic things. I don't think the state should punish you for that. But if you assemble your neo-Nazi friends and in front of the local synagogue and say, let's go get the Jews, that's where you cross the line, in, in, in my opinion. And of course, you, there'll always be sort of gray areas and, and hard cases. But I think if you, if you operate with a principle of viewpoint neutrality, you at least limit the gray zones and the hard, code, hard cases a lot more than if you have sort of HB, laws against hate speech or disinformation or, or, or the like. That distinction is, um, I think, really helpful framing for me and, and makes it kind of clear in a sense. And I, obviously, like you said, you the, the tension is always in the gray areas, but those two dichotomies feel really obvious to me in terms of what's exercising free speech and what's sort of stepping out of bounds. But before you go, I know we're running up on time here. Uh, one of my favorite quotes actually in the book is in the foreword of the book. And I posted this on Twitter, which is how our interaction that led to this interview sort of came to be. And I wanted to ask you about it because um, it struck me not just as sort of a reflection on the work that you had done in the book, but also almost as like a, a personal viewpoint. And uh, for me, I mean, the work that I do in Entangle and the newsletter and the podcast is sort of bringing this mix of political views together and putting them up next to each other and just letting people think about them and see them and digest them. And this quote is just so like on the bullseye for me. Um, you said to impose silence and call it tolerance does not make it so. Real tolerance requires understanding. Understanding comes from listening and listening presupposes speech. Um I love that quote. I want to tape it to my computer. <laughs> I, I, I'm wondering, you know, it, it feels like a personal kind of attitude almost to me. And I, I'm curious, you know, how that kind of comes through in, in your life or your work, um, you know, because it, it just struck me as like a little bit more than just a, a notion of the historical nature of free speech. Yeah. You know, I'm, first of all, I'm, you know, as uh, as fallible uh, as as every other human being, and and liable to say and, and and write stupid things. But I try to sort of hold myself to a certain standard. For instance, when I argue on uh, on, on Twitter on social media, and I find that you know certainly not with all, but but very often, like if you if you don't escalate, you know, if you don't escalate. The, the 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 Twitter feuds. If you actually try and use arguments and, and argue in a respectful uh, manner, you can actually get somewhere. And um, that also means um, listening to counter arguments and and trying to take them seriously, listening to what people actually say rather than sort of immediately uh, attacking straw men or attributing the worst possible motivations uh, to them. It's it's very hard to do, obviously, when you. We're tempted to just write something, uh, and, and especially when you sort of you're emotionally engaged. But but I think you know it actually gets you some so, so somewhere. And I, and I think in in that sense, I, I think you need radical free speech in order to compromise and 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 find common solutions, right? You know, 
in, in, in human, human life is, is extremely complicated and in sort of open, free, diverse societies, we need to be pragmatic and, and, and engage in all kinds of compromises in order to be able to live successfully together. But in order to do so, we, I think we need to be able to discuss all things so that we can know what other people think, so that we can reach compromises that work for, for all parties or, or, um, uh, and, and, uh, and be pragmatic in, a, in an enlightened uh, way. So, so in that sense, I see free speech as sort of the antithesis of violence and, and, and basically the, the precondition for a meaningful social peace um, rather than sort of, uh, as, as some people tend to see it today, as sort of the, the recipe for, for, for social discourse and this discord and, and, and violence. I, I very much see it in the, the, the other, uh, in the light of, of being the antithesis of violence and, and the precondition for, for a meaningful social peace where, where we're not sort of forced into specific categories and, and where we can engage it, uh, with, the, with each other. Jacob M. Tungama, uh, he is the author of Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media. Jacob, yeah, so glad we made this happen. Thank you so much for coming on the show and let's do it again sometime soon. I'd love to, Isaac, and keep up your incredible work. I'm an avid follower, so thanks a lot. Our newsletter is written by Isaac Saul, edited by Bailey Saul, Sean Brady, Ari Weitzman, and produced in conjunction with Tangle's social media manager, Magdalena Bakova, who also helped create our logo. The podcast is edited by Trevor Eichhorn, and music for the podcast was produced by Diet75. For more from Tangle, subscribe to our newsletter or check out our content archives at www.readtangle.com. Mm-hmm.